You're listening to the Mindful Weight Loss Podcast, episode 36. It's time to look at weight loss in a whole new way. Instead of focusing on calories in, calories out, you'll learn how to use your brain to transform your body and heal your relationship with food. If you're ready to lose your weight for the last time, you're in the right place. Because it's more than what you eat. It's who you are when you're eating. This is the Mindful Weight Loss Podcast. Here's your host, life and weight loss coach, Dr. Michelle Tupman. As you've heard so many times by now, I have tried literally every single diet out there. Heck, I was at my family doctor's recently and he even suggested I try apple cider vinegar to help me lose my weight. You can't stand in line at a checkout counter these days without seeing magazines with headlines that are promising fast weight loss or advertising supplements to rev up your metabolism. In fact, we spend so much money on these things that it's become a multi-billion dollar industry that has an interest in keeping us fat. The other problem is that with so much information coming at us from the diet industry and from health organizations and from our doctors and from Instagram stars and even from your neighbor who lost a bunch of weight on some weird diet, it becomes almost impossible to know what it is you actually need to do to lose your weight and keep it off. And even with so much advice out there, our waistlines are still expanding. What we're doing simply isn't working over the long term. And I think a lot of that has to do with information overload coming from the diet industry. And so today on the podcast, we're going to sift through all of that information and tell you what the science actually says about what works and what doesn't for weight loss. To help me out, we're talking to Robert Davis, the author of the new book, Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat, and The Truth About What Really Works. Robert Davis, PhD, is an award-winning health journalist whose work has appeared on CNN, PBS, WebMD, and in the Wall Street Journal. He is the host of the Healthy Skeptic video series, which dissects the science behind popular health claims, and the author of four consumer health books, Supersized Lies, Fitter Faster, Coffee is Good for You, and The Healthy Skeptic. In addition, Robert serves as president and editor-in-chief of Everwell, which produces and distributes health-related video content. A graduate of Princeton University, he holds a master's degree in public health from Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health and a PhD in health policy from Brandeis University, where he was a Pew Foundation Fellow. So here it is, our interview with Robert. Well, Robert, welcome to the podcast. I am so happy to have you here. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. So I would love to talk about your latest book, Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. Now, I read this book recently, page to page, in like one sitting because I was so excited <laughs> about the content in every single chapter. And there were a few things in this book that um, I really felt drove your messages home. And one of the things that I really appreciated was um, the vignettes that you had um, of people in every chapter who had been, um, I almost want to say the word victimized by the diet industry in one way or another, and found ways that are evidence-based, science-based to get themselves and their bodies and their minds um, back on track to achieve the, the goals that they wanted. Um, and so I really appreciated those vignettes in the chapter all the chapters. Um, and the other thing that I really loved was how you portrayed the evidence, the studies that you quoted, the um, and, and how that often relates or contradicts what, you know, some of the common or famous names um, in the diet industry have touted over the years. And I was surprised to learn just how far back in our history this goes. Um, when you started talking about, you know, Fletcher at the beginning and, you know, all of these, all of these things. And it just really struck me how, how far back this goes and just how much the diet industry has infiltrated our popular beliefs of what we need to do to eat, uh, to be healthy um, and to lose weight or to maintain a healthy weight. It was certainly uh, two things. Number one is that the stories, uh, the, the vignettes you talk about, um, I appreciate you saying that because I thought, thought they were not only an important part of the book, but an important part of my education as well. 
this is a topic I've covered for many years as a journalist. But I think a lot of this really hit home for me talking to these folks and hearing from them about the struggles they face. Certainly, I know from friends and family the struggles they face, but really interviewing them and hearing, having them share their stories and sort of very, uh, which I really appreciate. They're, they're really sharing intimate details about what they went through. Um, to hearing that firsthand and, and the damage, both physically and psychologically, that their struggles often throughout their lives have caused them, the diet industry essentially caused them. But the hopeful sign that they found something that works for them and that it took them really um, figuring out you, what's uniquely right for them to get to a place where they can find a way of eating, a way of living that's sustainable and makes them feel good. And I think that's what's key there. Uh, with regard to the history, I would say that I love that was one of the things about writing the book I loved most was just learning about some of this history because it's so fascinating. Some of these characters, some of these stories, finding out where these ideas come from and often how these ideas keep recurring. So when we something we think is a new idea, you know, low carb, for example, keto, we find echoes of it going back over a hundred years when people have tried ver- various iterations of this in the past. So that was something that really struck me as I was writing the book. All right. Yeah. And I I loved in those vignettes too how it's exactly how you described. I mean, each person had to find what it was that worked for them and their body and their lifestyle and what they could do sustainably over the long term. Um, which is certainly what we teach our clients here at Ways of Health as well. Now, in the beginning of the book, you quote the same statistic that we hear over and over again, and that's that 97% of people who diet will will gain some of their weight back, if not all of it, if not even more. And why do you think that is? Well, there, it's complex. I mean, number one, I think it's because a lot of the methods that are being peddled to us um, involve uh, methods that don't work. I mean, because people, and, and, and so I think that people are uh, put on restrictive diets. They're told to count calories. They're told to exercise in order to lose weight. And we can talk about why I think, I believe evidence shows a lot of these things are not effective over the long term. So I think they keep coming back to a lot of the same methods that we've been told for years and years and years are, quote, the way to lose weight. Um, so, so certainly that's one reason. Another reason is just simply biology. I mean, I, we know that, there, that this involves more than how much we exercise, and it involves a lot more than that. It's highly complex phenomenon, involves genetics, biology, psychology, environment, all kinds of things. And so um, I think that, that, so that's certainly a factor as to sort of how various, various forces are, up, are, are sort of arrayed against us when we try to do this. Um, so I think those are factors. And also, I think it's, it's in some cases, unrealistic expectations. You know, the expectations we know are set by society, what women particularly are supposed to look like, this sort of, you know, thin ideal that's foisted upon us by society and social media and all the rest. And so in many cases, people are expecting a, a body that may not be attainable for them at that particular point in their lives. And so I think that's a factor as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed, agreed completely. And another fascinating statistic that you gave in the book was that in the U.S. anyways, the diet industry is a $60 billion industry. How could, you know, when when you were researching your book, how how do you see that industry influencing the information that us as consumers get at the end of the day? I think it has an enormous influence. And I think at this point, it's probably worth, that was from several years ago. So in the US, it's likely worth now well over $70 billion. Um, but what I think happens, and we, we all see this, is that we have a diet industry, a weight loss industry that pushes a lot of these so-called remedies that we hear about, uh, whether it's, you know, go on a particular diet, this is the way to lose weight, or whether it's eat these foods, these are, you know, weight-friendly foods when in fact they're just the opposite or whether it's join a gym. In fact, in fact, going to gym is a good thing if you want to, but not necessarily lose weight, but join a gym and lose 30 pounds in 30 days or take the supplement. So whatever it is that the the diet industry has a financial incentive to push these various methods. And you know what happens? And they typically don't work long-term. So we keep coming back for more. So there's this insidious process where because they are pushing things that don't work, and we keep coming back for more, they keep making more money. And so there's, there's an incentive for them to keep pushing these failed solutions in order to maintain their profits. And, and that's really sort of, 
I think in a very simple way, I think money is really at the root of a lot of what we experience with regard to the diet or weight loss industry's influence on our behavior. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. And it's certainly what I've witnessed in the lives of my clients as well. So I myself have, you know, struggled with my my weight for decades, 20, 20 plus years. And most of my clients have as well. And at this point in time, we are just so desperate for an answer that, you know, anything that promises the quick fix or, you know, the magical solution or the secret to, you know, this, that, or the other thing, the temptation to hand over the money to in, in, in the hopes that's only that simple <laughs> um, is really strong, you know, for a lot of us. So I think there's this whole um, psychological component that just keeps us buying rather than maybe turning inwards to to ask what our bodies, what what it actually needs to to lose weight and be healthy. And, you know, this extends into the medical profession as well. I will be quite frank and say, I went to my family physician a number of months ago, um, you know, to check my cholesterol, get get some some things checked out. And he told me to take apple cider vinegar every day and that that's kind of what, what I would need to do. My family physician, you know, gave me gave me this advice. And like, so I chuckled when I read <laughs> what you had to say about that in the book, um, right? But, you know, some of this I want to use the term pop culture really um, is even infiltrating medical medical circles. And, you know, we're, we're telling our patients to do things that are not necessarily evidence-based because it just, it's just so prevalent um, out there in our society today. Well, and certainly, obviously you, you know far more about this than I do as a physician since you were a physician, but I think that, I think it's clear. We know the history of this with physicians over the over the years, over the decades, telling their patients just eat less and exercise more, and you'll lose weight. And and this is a whole problem. When obviously, and I, and I address this in, to some extent in the book, uh, the way that physicians are in the medical community is culpable here in giving not only bad advice, ineffective advice, but also advice that's harmful in making and adding to this sort of internalized stigma uh, that, that people experience. And so, I think that the role of the medical profession is certainly uh, significant here. Oh, well, 100%. And there's so many reasons for that is, you know, part of it is none of this is part of the medical education curriculum. So we don't learn about any of this in in medical school. And I think there, our culture has us believing that overweight people are lazy, that, you know, overweight people, um, you know, simply just need to stop eating so many cupcakes or, you know, whatever. And of course, we know that the issue is so much more complicated than that. But when we try to mm, funnel that down into something as simple as eat less, move more, we do way more harm um, than we help um, patients who struggle with weight, for sure. Yeah. And in the book, I actually quote a physician who writes an open apology to his patients who for, year told, for years told his patients, just who were struggling with their weight, you know, eat less, move more. And he says, I realized that was wrong. And he apologizes and said, I said, I realized that I've actually not only given them an ineffective advice, but done something harmful. Well, and you know, after reading that part of the book, it has actually made me watch my language when I talk to um, patients in the ER about their weight as well. It has completely changed. You would think that I would be immune to this living in a bigger body myself, but I fall into the same trap sometimes that that we all do. And, and that particular part of your book actually made me take pause um, to, to reflect how um, how I talk to patients when I switch out of coach mode and 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 back into doctor mode um, in the hospital for sure. So um, I really I really appreciated that. And you know another thing is I you talk also about how we tend to villainize food groups. You know that for the longest time it was no fat, and you know now we're kind of in a little bit of a a no carb. Um, place. And so many times I talk to women who actually have a deep fear of eating either of those fat, fat or carbs. So um, when you were researching this book, can you tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of our tendency to, to demonize food groups like fat and carbs? Yeah, I think that's a big part of diet culture too. And it, and it goes way back, as you say, it started with, with actually it goes even further back to you know the 1800s, which there were pamphlet written about, you know, uh, somebody who said that he'd lost weight by just cutting out 
saccharin matter, which essentially is carbs, sweets and carbs. And so, but it, but we in, in modern history, we look back to the 1970s where fast were demonized, sort of sort of as as studies came out linking saturated fat and, and to heart disease, the sort of mantra became fat makes you fat. So it's all about cutting out fat. If you if you want to uh, watch your weight, then you just just don't eat fat. And so we what we see what happens. The food industry flooded the market with all kinds of no fat and low fat products. People that are old enough can remember Snackwell's cookies. That became a huge thing in the 1980s, and everybody gobbled Snackwell's cookies. But of course, they don't have fat. They have to have something else. They have more sugar in many cases. Um, and so what happened is we saw that not only did people not uh, lose weight, but they actually, in many cases, gain weight. And we we had coincident with that an epidemic of diabetes. And, and experts obviously debate to the extent to which the no no fat, low fat craze contributed to that, but certainly. I think it's plausible to say that it had some role in that. And then we go from there to the essentially what I call the Atkins era. Dr. Atkins, Robert Atkins comes along and he'd been peddling the idea of that it's all about carbs for a long time. So this was his opening to say, see, that's not working with fat. It's really about the carbs. So forget about it. the fats are fine. You should just cut out the carbs. That's the key. And we've seen since then other constituents of the diet, which are villainized, which are singled out. So whether it's sugar, whether, and again, I'm not, and I think we all eat too much sugar, so we need to focus on that. But the fact that this is singled out is the main reason people are gaining weight or whether it's gluten or whatever it is, we see since then other constituents in the diet. And the point here is that it's not about a single food or group, food group or a constituent of the diet. It's about the overall quality of our diets. That's what matters. But unfortunately, what happens is that the conversation often focuses on one particular component of the diet and people say, okay, I'm going to focus on this particular thing or this kind of food. And with that, and I think that distracts us from the real issue, which I say, which is the overall quality of our diets. That's what really matters. And, 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 and this fixation on individual villains, I think has been terribly counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Agreed completely. And there, how has the science changed over the decades in regards to carbs and fat? Um, I think we've learned more, right? So I think that, for example, with fat, we knew, or the scientists knew from animal studies early on in the 70s and before that when animals were fed uh, high fat uh, diets, they tended to put on more weight. And we also know uh, that uh, when you eat carbs or when you eat fat, it requires uh, fewer calories to digest than, say, when you eat protein. So there there were lines of evidence that pointed to the fact that eating more fat might cause people to put on more weight, but there wasn't direct evidence. And as we've gotten more direct evidence from human studies, I think it's become more evident that it's not nearly that clear cut. For example, we have studies that now, a number of studies have done head-to-head comparisons of different kinds of diet, a low-fat diet, a low-carb diet. And what they found in study after study, these are randomized trials where people are assigned randomly to follow a particular kind of diet and follow it over time. And what they have found is that in the short term, um, sometimes there are differences. In some cases, maybe a lower carb diet uh, helps people lose more weight. In the short term, we're talking three to six months, but over a year or more, all of these diets have the same effects, which is to say people tend to put on weight over time, they regain some of the weight, and in the end, they end up uh, at about, about all about the same place, uh, regardless of what diet they were put on. So there have been these head-to-head comparisons one after the other, after the other, they've all pretty much arrived at the same place. And despite that, we still have people that are saying, no, you've got to go on whatever diet it is, a low carb diet, this is the way to go. And so that's what I find astonishing is that people are wedded to these approaches, despite evidence to the contrary, despite a number of studies to the contrary that refute these approaches. Yet these uh, methods continue to be pushed, not only by lay people, but also uh, health professionals and, mm-hmm. and, and diet gurus as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you do you have a sense from your research about why, like why we're still pushing some of these diets when the science is quite clear that we shouldn't be? That's a great question. I think one reason certainly is that it's it's there. The, there's the appeal, as you say, that there's got to be some secret. There's got to be some shortcut. So it's far sexier to say, well, yeah, there's have an explanation about a particular kind of food that has a particular kind of effect on your body. And if only you'll cut it out, then that will be the secret. So I think that's, that's certainly one reason. 
Another is biases. And I talk about this in the book, different kinds of biases. I mean, I like to say when it comes to nutrition, um, many people treat it as a religion. Uh, and within this, re this religion, there are different denominations. So you've got the keto denomination, you've got the intermittent fasting denomination, you've got the detox denomination, the paleo, whatever, take your pick. So I think that's a lot of what happens is that people and not only lay people, but also in some cases, you know, weight loss gurus are wedded to a particular denomination and they have an almost religious like belief in a certain approach. And when there is evidence that comes out to refute their belief, they dismiss that so-called confirmation bias. So they'll cling to what supports that and dismiss what refutes it and, and continue to push a particular approach because they, they do believe zealously in this, but even though their belief is contradicted by scientific evidence. And so we see this with a lot of uh, uh, diet doctors and others who in the weight loss field who cling to particular approaches and almost make a name based on that. And, and every opportunity they have push that particular approach, even though the science shows that that's not necessarily the best or only, or even an appropriate or good way for everybody uh, to reach a healthy weight. Mm -hmm. And when I started reading some of the references, like some of the papers, some of the studies that you reference in your book as well, and I was surprised at just how many studies out there in general when it comes to nutrition is funded by agriculture industry, by um, you know, other industries that have a vested interest in all of this. Like I was, I was surprised at the vol at the volume. Um, and how do you think that plays in to the way um, the results of these studies are portrayed in the media? I think it can play a big role. And it's something that I spent a lot of time. I went through over a thousand studies as I was researching the book. And I have a lot of, for people that are interested, want to geek out on the science, I have all, a lot of references. They can go look at the studies. But as you say, um, I spent a lot of time trying to, uh, to ascertain, because sometimes it's not readily apparent, um, where, who funded the study, because that can have a role. Now, it's not to say that it automatically invalidates a study if there was a, a vested interest that funded it. But I do think you have to look at that in the context of what scientists call the totality of the evidence. How does it fit in with other studies that were not funded by a vested interest? And how does it fit into the big picture? So yes, that can play a role because in, in sometimes in very subtle ways, sometimes it can be that the uh, researchers will, will find something, but then they'll spin it in a certain way to uh, more favorably reflect the funder's interest. Or sometimes the study will be designed in a way to try to reach a certain outcome. So it, it's not a matter of outright fraud necessarily, but it's a sort of subtle things that are done with regard to the methodology, with regard to the interpretation of the data that can influence the, uh, the conclusion of that study. So I think what's important and what I try to do is to look carefully, not just at the conclusions, but look at the methods, look at the data, the raw data to really figure out what was there and, and maybe if the conclusions or the interpretation was skewed in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I find it interesting how the public uh, views all this. Like, for example, in the last uh, maybe two years, two years ago, it was um, the Canadian government updated the Canada Food Guide. And the new guidelines suggest that we should be um, eating much less red meat than um, what the previous guidelines had said. And they had provided some evidence to go along with this. And I live in Alberta, which prides itself on Alberta beef. And so the... Um, the cattle farmers in Alberta kicked up a fuss and came back with counter studies, you know, to show why um, we should still be, you know, eating red meat um, in, in, in the diet. And it really caused a lot of confusion amongst, um, you know, people in my community of like, who the heck are we, are we supposed to believe? So when, when people are reading popular media or, you know, hear a new study being talked about um, on the news or even, you know, studies that are, you know, quoted by guidelines that come from our governments or the CDC or, you know, what whatever it is. Um, do you have any tips on how you can read this stuff and how to um, interpret the information and then how to use that information to make decisions in your own life? Any Any advice there? That's a great question. Because let me say first, I think, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, all research is biased and we should just tune it all out. And I think that's definitely the wrong conclusion. That, that what I like to say is there's a difference between being a skeptic and a cynic. A cynic is somebody who's going to say, I don't listen to anything. All those researchers are biased. It's all garbage. 
And I think that's a terrible mistake because even though research clearly there are, it, it, there are limitations to it and there are flaws and there are biases, it nevertheless is the best tool that we've ever had in the history of humankind to get us closer to the truth. And that's what it's about. And so I think it's, it's all about interpreting it properly, knowing how to do that, and not just, and not just saying, I'm going to just not listen to any of it. So I think that said, what's important is to ask a few basic questions when you're looking at reporting on any kind of study. So you want to think about, first of all, who was studied? Was it in animals? Or was it in test tubes or was it in human beings? Because often the media reports we get are in ant lab animals or test tubes. That's not necessary. It can generate interesting hypotheses, but it's not necessarily applicable to human beings in that form. And so that's something. And, and nevertheless, we'll see a headline that says, you know, eating avocado helps you lose weight. And you find out that they were feeding avocado to, r- to rats or something. So I think that's something that's number one. You have to consider how, how many people were in the study. Was it looking at 10 people or was it looking at 10,000 people? And so that's an important indicator as well. Um, you have to look at so sometimes how the study was done. Was it observing people over time, uh, an observational study that shows a correlation, or was it a controlled trial that actually assigned people to eat one diet and other randomly assigned another group of people to eat another, another diet and follow them over time? That's the gold standard. That's not always possible, and, you, at all, and they're expensive to do, and they're not always feasible for all things to study, but that's the gold standard. And when you have that kind of study, it's certainly on a higher level of, of uh, credibility. Um, uh, and, and then, as you mentioned, another factor is who funded the study. That's a factor as well. As I said before, it doesn't necessarily invalidate the results or make them not believable if there was a vested interest, but we have to just take that into consideration uh, when we're evaluating a study. So um, I think that, and I could go on with other factors as well, but there are variables like that, I think. And unfortunately, in news reports, those kinds of details either are buried in the story or they're missing altogether. So I often tell people is don't make any decisions about your health or about what you should eat based on a news report. And I say this as a longtime journalist, somebody who tries to teach journalists to do a better job of adding context to their stories. Uh, But I do think that, uh, unfortunately, these stories are not uh, typically don't contain enough detail or information to help people really make informed decisions. And even if one study is a good study and was, was a randomized trial, for example, and a lot of people, one study is still shouldn't be necessarily the basis for people making decisions. As I said before, it's all about the science as a whole. It's about the totality of the evidence. That's what matters. So I advise people to look to other sources of information that do look at the science as a whole, that, that are balanced, that do contextualize the information to help lay things out for people rather than looking at individual news stories. I love that. That's so helpful. And you are in such a unique position to be a journalist with the public health training, um, right? To be, to be able to, you know, share with us what you find in a way that, you know, the lay population can understand. So just thank you for what you do on The Healthy Skeptic because, right, it goes a long way to, to educating all of us. Um, I just want to pivot for a second. We we mentioned exercise briefly earlier, and I think it's important to talk about this when we're when we're having a weight loss conversation because I think it's a, a misunderstood thing. Like the the belief out there is, you know, move more, eat less, but moving more doesn't necessarily equate to weight loss, does it? Right, right, and it's and it's a and it's a it's a very important issue. And I, by the way, I say this to somebody who's an avid exerciser. My last book, Fitter Faster, is all about the science of exercise. And I believe that it's the closest thing we have to a fountain of youth. If we had a pill that could do everything, you know, physical activity can, everything from reducing the risk of cancer and heart disease to, you know, improving your mood, uh, you know, to improving your sex life, reducing the risk of colds, it could do all those and more. We'd all be clamoring for it. So there's every reason in the world for people to move their bodies. And I like to, and, and sometimes we use the word exercise, which gives it a negative connotation, but it's that movement that's really what it's about. So every reason in the world to move our bodies, but one of the things that, that exercise movement doesn't do so well typically is to help us shed pounds. And it's simply because it, the kind of exercise that most of us do, which is really good for our health and our emotional and physical well-being, going for a walk, taking a bike ride, you know, put, uh, you know, raking leaves, whatever it is, those things are all very good to do, but they don't necessarily burn enough calories to really make a dent in our weight. And yet the reason that many, many, if not most people take up exercises to try to lose weight. And that's what's really unfortunate, I think, because they go into exercise with the wrong expectations for the wrong reason. They're led, and it's not their fault, they're led to believe that this will help them lose weight. They find that it doesn't succeed. It's not helping them lose weight. They see it as something they have to do, and it's not pleasant. 
And so they end up giving it up. And so I think exercise is set up to fail. We're set up to fail by the way that exercise is presented and the possibilities there. So I think that that is really, I think it's really important. And this is, this is sort of something that's particularly near and dear to my heart. An issue for me is that we reframe movement and physical activity, not as something that we do have to do or that we need to do as punishment because we overindulge uh, with regard to food, but it's something that we do to help uh, enhance our well-being because it helps us feel better physically and emotionally, because it helps our health, because it helps reduce stress, because it helps us feel empowered, and that we view movement that way rather than is something we do to lose weight. I love everything about that. In my coaching program, it's a, it's a six-month program, and we actually start by, I tell my clients to stop exercising. And before you raise your eyebrows at me, because I, I know how important movement is, hear me out. Most clients come to me feeling that they have to put extraordinary hours in the gym to lose weight, that they have to do this specific ratio of resistance training to cardio, and they've got to get everything right. And it's wrought with rules, just like the way they're eating you know, is. And we kind of have to unwind <laughs> all of that stuff um, in their minds. And, and we kind of take a step back from that. And then the next month in the program, we, we, in, we reintroduce it as movement. And we try and you know, step away from having a prescription and finding movement that you love, that you enjoy, that you will do you know, on, a reg- on a regular basis, um, right? And I find... Just as it's very difficult to get women in particular, because you know that that's who I who I coach, um, to you know let go of the fear around fat and carbs. There's a whole bunch of um, mindset stuff around how they use exercise that we that we need to unwind as well. And I think once people start viewing movement as part of a healthy life, you know, rather than as a tool for weight loss, it dramatically changes everything for them. And as I think that when you approach when you approach exercise or movement as a weight loss tool, it feels like crap. <laughs> it feels like punishment. Um, it's not enjoyable. You're often doing um, you know, prescriptive exercise that you don't like. And you know, there's all sorts of reasons why it becomes something that they quit over time and then so reluctant to try movement again um, down the line because of that um, experience. So I loved how you just described um, how movement should be used um, kind of in terms of healthy living rather than rather than weight loss. And there is signs to show that um, exercise or movement can be helpful for weight maintenance, right? Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so there are certainly benefits related to weight as you say, for weight maintenance, also it can help. Uh, there's there's evidence it can help reduce visceral fat. That's the kind mm-hmm. of fat around the waist that's tied to negative metabolic effects. So certainly there are benefits related to weight, but it's just that the main thing people expect is to actually help them, you know, reduce to shed pounds, and that's right. where it it typically falls short. Right. Absolutely. All right. And let's just pivot back again to talk about that. Um, cider vinegar that my my talk wanted me to take. <laughs> Just come out and tell us, Robert, what does the science say about that? <laughs> well, what the science says is that first of all, I, if you if if you like the taste, I guess it's fine to use. Many people just have to really <laughs> grin and bear it when they when they you know because it's it doesn't taste good to me. But um, basically, what we know is that there is the the the, the claims are based on one particular study. Um, that was a short-term study that found that over, I think, three months, people who had uh, who were given apple cider vinegar lost a few pounds more, I think two to four pounds more than people who didn't take it. Now, here's where the idea of uh, you know vested interest coming into play. Guess who funded that? It was a <laughs> company, a Japanese company in this case, that makes apple cider vinegar. See? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. And that's the main, so, so we talk about the totality of evidence. You say, okay, well, mm-hmm. that's one study. It was funded by a Japanese company. Let's look at the other evidence. And so that's what I try to do. And what we found is there's really no other good direct evidence in human beings that it can actually reduce weight. We have circumstantial evidence that it may uh, reduce blood sugar spikes uh, in people after they've had a high-carb high, uh, high meal. It may help reduce appetite in some people, but in some of the studies showed actually that was because people felt nauseated. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily a great way to <laughs> control your weight. So the point is that the evidence, aside from this one study that was funded by an apple cider vinegar, vinegar manufacturer, is not very strong. There's not much there. So that, I think, you have to conclude that there's not a lot of good evidence there 
that it's going to help. Now, uh, again, and there's, and there's also, I should say, there's evidence in rodents as well about how it may affect fat accumulation in rodents. But that we know, as we said, doesn't necessarily translate into human beings. So that's the body of evidence we have currently. Uh, and I think it's important if people want to try it, that's fine. It's, if they want to try it and see if it works for them, they need to go in with reasonable expectations, knowing that the evidence in human beings that it actually helps to lead to weight loss is very slim. Mm-hmm. Right. And you actually have a whole chapter dedicated to, you know, these so-called superfoods. And, you know, we hear about this all of the time, right? That, um, you know, coconut oil will do this or MCT oil will do that or, you know, various supplements or or vitamins are the magic bullet, right? It's the one thing that's going to turn everything around. And is there, is there a magic bullet? I wish I could say yes, but unfortunately <laughs> not. And, and yeah. you know, I think this idea of these, these superfoods really is the flip side of the villains we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it's taking a complex phenomenon that is weight management and trying to boil it down to something that's very simple. Either get rid of this villain, that's what's causing your problem, or eat this food, that's the hero, and that'll help you lose weight. So they're really, they're mirror images, but it's the same phenomenon of trying to simplify a very complex thing into either you eat, don't eat food or you should eat other foods. And, and we see a number of these so-called superfoods, as you mentioned, whether it's avocados or whether it's apple cider vinegar or chili peppers. And in many cases, these are really good foods. I mean, these are healthful foods that should be included or can be included if you like them in a, in a, in a healthful diet. So by all means, there's nothing wrong with eating them. The problem is that they are singled out as having some kind of unique uh, weight-reducing properties. And if you will just eat these foods, you'll lose weight. That's where really, I think, uh, the, the advice goes off the rails and taking foods that are good foods, part of a helpful diet and turning them into something that's magical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have certainly seen women latch on to different ideas. You know, avocados is definitely one of them. MCT oil is another one. Um, you know, things that come up, you know, frequently and, um, just this, obsessive need to include these things every day in their diet, but along with the processed foods and the junk foods and everything else that we know is, you know, really the root of the problem. And I I think that that's part of the damage that um, identifying, you know, villains and superheroes, right, Um, within our diet, you know, really, really causes us that we kind of... um, don't don't see the forest through the trees, I think, um, when we start looking too small at, at individual foods as having um, all of these, um, you know, superpowers. And just like, just like we talk about foods, right? And, and just like there's been trends over time, like for the longest time, it was low fat, then, then low carb. There also seems to be a lot of interest in intermittent fasting these days. Like that just comes up left, right, and center, not just for weight loss, but for, for health as well. Um, right. And so do you have any thoughts about what the science says about that? Yeah. So, so it's a really, it's a, it's an interesting, fascinating issue to me because I followed it over time and there is some evidence, um, particularly animals. And again, I have, we have to say it's in animals and less in people that fasting or intermittent fasting can have beneficial effects when it comes to health. We know that animals, for example, that, that, that are put on fasting diets tend to live longer. They have lower rates of chronic diseases like cancer and heart disease. And so there seem to be, at least in animals, and this includes monkeys and animals that are, in some cases, relatively close to human beings, that it may have some benefits. That said, um, when it comes to weight loss, it's, it's less, the evidence is less compelling, I would say, with regard to it being uniquely beneficial for weight loss. What the studies show is that intermittent fasting can lead to weight loss, but not necessarily more effectively than a standard calorie cutting or other kind of diet. So I would say that if people are interested in trying it, or if they're trying it, it works for them, that's great. Uh, but I also think that it should be viewed just like any other diet the, with questions that, are, that really need to be asked. Is it sustainable over the long run? And there, I think there, that's an open question because it hasn't been studied over the long term. Can people, and it's, and it's not easy for everybody to do. Some people say they can do it fine, but many people would say, and I am included, it'd be very, very hard to go for long periods and not eat. Um, so is, but how, how realistic is this something that you can do over a long term? Um, there's also some concern, and I think there needs to be more research looking at this, is that when people went on an intermittent fasting diet, they were more likely to lose muscle mass 
than people who had a went on a standard calorie restricted diet. And that's important because when we lose weight, we want to lose fat. We don't want to lose muscle mass, obviously. So I think that that's important to look at as well. So there are some open questions. I think I like to say to people, if it's something you want to try, if it's something particularly as a Kickstarter uh, that you think can help get you started, but I think it's important to say to figure out, okay, what's going to come next? How are you going to have a long-term eating uh, pattern that's going to be sustainable and it's going to allow you to maintain a healthy weight? I think so. That's what I would say there. And also, the one other point is I would say people need to go in with managing their expectations. This can be like any other diet. If people look at it as this is going to be the key, this is the magic approach, this is the shortcut, I'm going to do this. And then when it doesn't work, just like a keto diet or just like a low-fat diet or just like a paleo diet or whatever else it doesn't work, they shouldn't blame themselves and say, well, my friend, it worked for my friend, it worked for the person on Instagram, it didn't work for me, so I'm a failure, the problem is me. Because that is, I think, that is the danger of trying yet another one of these approaches like intermittent fasting, if that's going to be the result that people are going to end up not succeeding and then blaming themselves. Right, right. And um, it's, if you go back to those studies that you quoted from the very beginning of this conversation about, you know, if you study um, different people doing different diets, that there might be some, you know, short-term differences in the amount of weight loss, but over a longer term, it all just kind of you know, evens out. Um, and that would include intermittent fasting, I would, I, I would suggest. Yeah. But um, when you look at the various different diets in these studies, there are some commonalities amongst all of them. You know, like for instance, most of them would include some version of eating less processed foods and more, more whole foods, you know, things right. like this, right? So um, in the context of all of that and of all the evidence that you looked at to, um, to research your book, what does work for weight loss? What works is what, as you suggest, what also works for optimal health. And that is, and again, I, I, I will use the word diet, but I don't like to use that word because it implies something that's a short-term thing. You go on a diet, you lose the weight, and you go off the diet. So really what, what I like to call it is an eating pattern um, that includes, uh, that, that again, is optimal for good health. So what does that mean? It means lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, beans, seeds fish, lean meats, dairy, if you consume dairy, and then minimizing the highly processed ultra, so-called ultra-processed foods, things like soda, um, uh, chips, fried foods, candy, sweets, those kinds of things. Now, notice I didn't say you never eat them because that's different from a, a restrictive diet that says never eat these seven things. You're not allowed to ever touch them, which of course that does a number on our brains and then we want them even more. So it doesn't mean you never eat them, but it means that over time, and that's the key over time, you change your eating habits so that you eat more of the foods, the whole foods, and fewer of the processed foods and uh, of the highly processed foods. So, they, so over time, they eventually become occasional treats that you have in moderation rather than something you eat, say, every single day. And, and, and I, think people, I think the beauty of this kind of approach is that it allows a lot of flexibility so that people can tailor a diet that works for them because what I eat is going to be different than when someone else eats, for example. You know, I, I don't like kale. I don't like cauliflower. It doesn't mean I have to be forced force myself to eat that. It, but there are plenty of foods within fruits, vegetables, those other categories I mentioned that I can find that I do like that are going to sustain me that I will enjoy. And I think that's what's key here for people to be able to tailor their eating pattern in a way that works for them so they can sustain it over the long term. And then also they can make gradual changes if they're consuming, say, candy every day or sodas or fried foods. They can gradually over time reduce the, their intake of those foods, but they should know that it's not, they shouldn't be expected to change drastically overnight because it's a process of changing our habits so that we're not relying on willpower over time, but we're relying on a uh, change in habits, uh, which, which occur again over time. And I think that to me is key there. So it's a matter of, of number one, tailoring it to your needs. Number two, doing it gradually. Right. And I think the gradually part is so very important. And in our programs, we talk about it as 1% wins. It's just how, how, can you, how can you improve your diet just 1% today, right? And it's, it's the, this accumulation of the 1% that, that lead us to you know, pers um, permanent habit changes when it comes to what we eat. And I think, um, I think part of the problem a lot of us face is that the processed foods are everywhere. 
there, right? On every corner, everywhere we look. Um, you know, even if you go to the grocery store, I, I don't know what proportion of the grocery store is, you know, processed, but it's a good, it's a good, you know, proportion of it. Um, and, you know, I think people have to make a concerted effort to change the types of foods that they purchase even um, to bring home um, and eat. And so I, I think it's, um, can, can you speak a little bit to the challenges of, you know, making these diets just in terms of what's actually available to us if you if you pop into the grocery store? No, that's a, a very important point. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, and this is, I think when we talk about the contributors to the sort of obesity epidemic we have, I think that's, I would argue it's a big part of it is just the ubiquity of these foods. I mean, every, whether you go into the hardware store or the cleaners or all kind of the airport, all kinds of places in the past where you wouldn't have any food, but now you have all of these highly processed foods that, that are very tempting, that are beckoning us everywhere we go. And certainly the grocery store, more and more of the aisles are filled with these kinds of foods. And it's understandable that people, number one, they're, they're, they taste good. They're manufactured to make us want to eat them and to eat more. And that's, that's the way that, that, that they're designed. But also they're convenience foods. And with the busy lifestyles we have, when you go to the grocery store, it's much easier to buy a box of something than to have to cook a meal. So it's completely understandable why people turn to them. But that said, I think that it's important. Part of a lot, I believe, of having a healthy weight is thinking about trying to do planning, um, you know, strategic planning, I call it. And part of that is thinking ahead, okay, so if I, how do I deal with the situation where I've got, I'm in a hurry, I work, I've got a, a fixed dinner, I've got a family perhaps to feed and, and, and how to plan ahead to think about how am I going to do that in a way to have perhaps foods prepared ahead or find foods that are partially prepared that I can prepare rather than resorting to having to go through the drive-through or, or uh, serving something out of a box. And so, so a lot of, I think this is trying to resist the pressure and the temptation of buying these kinds of processed foods by planning in ways that allow us to find alternatives. And, and I'm not suggesting it's easy because it's not, but it does take thinking ahead and planning to be able to withstand this pressure just to pick up a box of something and eat it. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, you know, when, when I say similar things to my clients, often what I get back is I don't have time. There's so much going on. There's so much stress. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sleeping, all of this other stuff. So, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to weight loss, how important is stress management, getting sleep and, you know, the other aspects of a, of a healthy lifestyle? Well, in, in, in the uh, research I did, I, I certainly found it to be extraordinarily important. We know study, there's a large body of evidence linking insufficient sleep to weight gain. Uh, both from uh, randomized trials as well, well as observational studies and, and other lines of evidence. So we know that when people sleep six or fewer hours a night routinely, that has certain effects, not only perhaps, and it's not fully understood why, metabolically perhaps, it may be, it affects sort of a parts of their brain that cause them to crave food, or it could be in some cases, they're just more, up more hours. And so they have more opportunities to eat or some combination of those things. So certainly not getting enough sleep is, is a factor. And then stress, as you suggest, plays a role as well. I mean, our bodies release cortisol. There's evidence that cortisol levels go up and how that affects the brain and, and so forth and, and fat accumulation. And so there's evidence uh, with regard to stress as well. So I think that we think about arriving at a healthy weight, um, both getting enough sleep and also managing stress, I believe have to be uh, components or crucial components of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love it. And so if you put all of the pieces together, uh, you know, a realistic weight loss program that is based in science would include all of these things, right? Eating, um, eating a diet um, higher in the whole foods that you mentioned earlier um, with less emphasis on the processed food, um, getting movement um, as opposed to, you know, what what we would call exercise in the diet industry. Um, and then also addressing, you know, these issues of chronic stress um, and sleep and approaching this as mm, how, what do we need to do to live healthy? That's what's going to help us lose weight in the long run. Absolutely. And and, and again, I, I, you know, and I look at it, I look at all this, this through a prism of health. And so a prism of health. And I think that's what it's about is not looking at this necessarily about starting with weight loss per se, but looking at it, how do I arrive? How do I live a lifestyle that's going to allow me to be at a healthy weight for me? And that's going to be a different weight for everybody. 
but a healthy weight is going to be a weight that I think is one that where you feel good, where you're metabolically healthy and a weight that's sustainable. And that's, it's not going to be the same thing. It's not going to be necessarily the lowest weight someone ever weighed or what they weighed when they were 21 or what their friends weigh or what they think they should weigh necessarily based on some BMI chart or what someone on Instagram weighs, but it's a weight that where they feel, they feel good. They feel healthy. Their metabolic markers are good. And again, it's a weight that they can maintain over time. I think that has got to be the best definition of ideal weight that I have ever heard. <laughs> I love I love that. So where you feel good and healthy, you're metabolically healthy and it encompasses a lifestyle that is sustainable for you long term. Oh gosh, I love that. That's that's brilliant. Well, I can't say that I can't say I invented it, but there are a lot of folks I think that have increasingly are vocal about that and mm-hmm. trying to define a healthy weight that way rather than something on a BMI chart or some other kind of metric, which 100%. I think leads people astray. Yeah. Well, we could have a whole other episode on the BMI, let me tell yeah. you. But yeah, um, I think that is an excellent place to leave off for today, Robert. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you. We've covered a lot of, a lot of ground, so it's really, really enjoyed it. All right. I, I loved I loved every second of this. I think it was super helpful. Um, I will share with everyone um, a link to your book because I think it's a must read for everybody. And thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Michelle. Wonderful. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Robert as much as I did. He has the unique distinction of being both a scientist and a journalist and has done just a super job of challenging our assumptions about weight loss and providing some solutions for moving forward. If you'd like to know more about Robert, you can visit his website, healthyskeptic.com, and his book, Supersized Lies, is available on Amazon. The links will be in the show notes for you. Now, everything Robert recommends in his book and in our interview together today reflects exactly what we teach in our Nourish Yourself Body and Mind Coaching Program. If you want to learn more about that, head on over to nourishyourselfbodyandmind.com or reach out to me to book a consult call and I'm happy to help you out. Thanks for listening.